turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Welcome to the show. If you haven't heard the show before, hey, join in. The show is in two parts. The first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, uh, nostalgia, entertainment. We're going to be talking a little bit about entertainment and a little bit about religion and morality. And it's one of the most interesting guests that I think we've had on the show in quite a while, Bud Hall. And we'll be talking about him. A little bit more. But in any event, I'm accompanied today by my wife, Beth. Hi, everybody. My son, Michael. Hello, everyone. And if you don't know about estate planning, now, alone, we did just did a series of seminars about it. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate. And in today's world, it's very important to avoid probate. There was an article in the Daily News not that long ago. You may want to look up of, what, of the problems about the court system right now in this pandemic world. And as far as elder law is concerned, our main our main goal in our office, as far as elder law is concerned, is trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, if you have a question to ask us by email, Michael, where do they where do they send the question? If you want to reach us by email, you're going to go to askmikeconnors at gmail.com. That's askmikeconnors at gmail.com, C-O-N-N-O-R-S. All right, Beth, you have one question on the Yes, I do. Dear Mr. Connors, I inherited a house from a great aunt who lived in the Bronx. I was told by the real estate broker who was going to list the house for sale that there was a Medicaid lien on the house and I can't sell it till the lien is paid off and to call him when I pay off the lien and then he will list it. Is this true? The lien was a little over $180,000. I don't have the money to pay it. What can I do? Thank you, Jill. Okay. Well, Jill, you know, the first thing you do, you you can contact us if you want. You contact a lawyer to try to make a a deal with Medicaid and, and they would probably reduce the lien um, and they would accept payment from the closing and the sale of the property. So in other words, maybe you, can, maybe you have expenses or something else. Now, I assume if it's a house in the Bronx, Bronx it's worth at least five hundred, six hundred thousand dollars 600000 minimum. So you should be able to still clear three hundred plus, And you can make a deal with the city to reduce that amount. 
And, and another thing, if somebody lives in the house, if you live in the house for 10 years after your great aunt's death, the lien expires after 10 years. So, you, you know, that's a question. Do you hold the house for 10 years? And if somebody can live in the house, maybe that's worth it. Or if you can't live in the house for 10 years and you, you want to get rid of the house, um, you know, because nobody nobody can take care of it, nobody lives there, you don't have the money for the real estate taxes, insurance, you, you contact the city. There's an attorney who's on the lien. You contact the attorney who's on the lien, and you work out a deal. You reduce the um, the amount of the lien, and again, they they get paid out of the closing. So the real estate broker can list it. We can talk to the real estate broker. They can list it, but um, the lien will be paid in the long run. But we make a deal out because the city – the city would rather you cooperate with them and pay something than, let's say, just stall them out for 10 years and maybe they get nothing. So, yeah, give us a call and we can work that out. Now, here's one thing I should you know, note in passing. This is one of the reasons you want to avoid probate. Because the way the lien pops up ordinarily, 9 out of 10 times, the way the lien pops up is if the house is going through court administration or probate, then Medicaid has computer programs. They put a lien on the estate. They put a lien on the house, and that's how they pick it up. If you avoid probate, if your aunt had done a trust and the property had gone straight to you without going through court, there's a good chance we would have escaped that lien. So, you know, just keep that in mind. That's why you want to plan in advance. You know, and, and when's the last minute? Well, before you die. So you, you want to do your planning before you die. And, and I mean, today's a, a crazy world. You never know what's going to happen. Of course, I assume if it was your great aunt, she wasn't a young person. So she should have done some more planning. I know some people, you know, you can lead a horse to water and they won't drink. And, and that might be, you know, that might be the story. But if you, especially if you have children, if you have children, you want to protect your house. Let's do a trust agreement. We don't want to go through probate. And even if there are no Medicaid liens, no nursing home liens or whatever, you want to avoid probate because right now the court system is backed up because of COVID. I've got a hunch the court system is going to be backed up for quite a while because of COVID. And people, it's going to take years and years for some people to be able to sell their house that has to go through probate or court administration. And you don't want to do that. You want to avoid probate if you can. And you ordinarily can if you plan in advance. And in this case, if you own real estate, we want to put the house in a trust. Now, I know a lot of people say, I don't understand what a trust agreement is. A trust agreement is a family contract. That's our dog who's protecting the front door out here. So for those of you who can <laughs> hear the barking. Uh, he, he doesn't let people come near the studio <laughs> when we're taping. But in any event, you avoid probate when you pass away. There are no assets in your name alone when you pass away. And the idea behind the trust agreement, which is the best way to avoid probate if you have if you have a house, it's your house as long as you're alive. After you're gone, it passes to the next generation. Ordinarily, you know, I use the terminology parents to children, but in this case it could have been great aunt to great niece or whatever. And the great niece could have sold the property ordinarily tax-free, um, avoiding going through probate, avoiding liens. So... If you own a house and you want to protect your house, what we want to do is set up a trust agreement between, let's say in this case, between parents and children, um, but it could be between great aunt and great niece, could be between significant other, you know, whatever. You you fill in the blanks. 
90% of our trust we do are between parents and children, so I use that terminology. It's a parent's house as long as they're alive. After they're gone, it passes straight to the children. The way you think a will would work, but a will, the problem with the will is if you want to use a will to transfer assets, you have to go through court. You have to get the judge's approval before you do it, and, and, and there were always red tape and delays and costs associated with probate, which you would ordinarily not want to go through. But now it's it's worse than it used to be, and you want to avoid probate. And if you want to see us at Connors and Sullivan, give us a call at 718-238-6500. Now, Michael, in the seminar we do, we spend a lot of time on how to avoid probate and trust. So if somebody wanted to see our, our seminar on YouTube, how would they uh, access it? All you have to do is go to youtube.com and then search Connors and Sullivan video seminar. Michael Connors, Connors and Sullivan video seminar, and you should be right there. Okay, and if you want to see Toy Soldier Collection to end all Toy Soldier Collections, you can type that into YouTube and then you'll see you'll see us, you know, with our some of our Toy Soldiers. And I just want to explain this. This video was done by CBS News a few years ago. The uh, the collection has expanded over the years, so we have more toy soldiers and miniature military miniatures than we used to have in the past. So if you want to schedule an appointment to see the military miniatures on our office, please do so. Um, our staff is going to treat you like you're crazy, just like they treat me like I'm crazy. <laughs> but they have to humor me. I'm the boss. <laughs> oh, so gosh. then we'll show you a tour of the military miniatures and, and tell you what battles there are. And I think some of, some of the staff, Beth, you're going to start naming all the toy soldiers individually so we can keep track I, of marching. That's you. That's you. Now, if anybody actually cares, there is also a less significant collection, which is the Carnegie collection of toy, sol- of toy dinosaurs, which, I mean, probably nobody actually cares about. Nobody cares about that. There's some children that get here, so okay. yeah. So, needless to say, our, our next guest is, is an actor he was most of you probably know him from the little rascals the not 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 listen old people there don't go back to the 1930s <laughs> on us we're talking about 1990 <laughs> bug hall who played alfalfa and he had a you know he he did more than a few films i think there's about 20 or 30 on imbd and he has a very interesting journey in as life as well as as well as arachnoquake Thank you very much, okay. which some of us appreciate sci-fi original movies, but I know that's a rare commodity. But he has a very interesting journey through life, and you know we're going to be talking to him about it, and it's one of the most fascinating interviews that I've ever done. Here's, a, you know, to me, a relatively young man who has changed his life around completely and hopefully is on the road to salvation, so... We'll take a short break, and then we'll be talking to uh, Bug Hall. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. 
My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. You know, uh, today when people were looking at my schedule, uh, a lot of the women in my office were very excited because our next guest is one of their favorites, Bug Hall, who a lot of people remember as being Alfalfa in the Little Rascals of 1994. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, so let me ask you something. I mean, you 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 did a lot of work in Hollywood or whatever. You just said you mentioned that you're not really working too much there. No, I'm I'm officially retired. I uh, back in October, I decided that it really wasn't a viable path for me and for for what I want, uh, and it, it's it's kind of filled to the brim with rot, you know, Hollywood in general, and. It was no longer, uh, it was no longer my my path to get to heaven. Right, so, so that was it. Okay, now uh, a lot of people wouldn't really phrase it. It's my path to get to heaven as the most important thing, you know, in, in his or her life. Uh, what one? Why are you saying that? What? What? Why does Hollywood stop you from getting to heaven? Well, I. I don't think this is true of just Hollywood, but I think Hollywood is a good, strong mirror to the rest of the world. Um, look, we, the spiritual life is hard, right? And so I'm a Catholic, first of all. I, 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 do, I don't believe in the one-and-done uh, kind of approach to Christianity, you know? Um, I believe that we have to work out our salvation through fear and trembling. <laughs> uh, and I think that... I think the soul dies a million by a million little paper cuts of, of uh, compromise, right? So what I noticed is, for me, when I converted, I first noticed that I couldn't really find any jobs that were morally good. Uh, there were always these sort of large moral evils, and so I figured, well, I'll start my own company. And so I started my own company with uh, a bunch of Catholic friends, and we had this idea of being sort of a Trojan horse, of making secular projects, secular shows and movies um, with strong Christian values uh, and sort of correcting the cultural course. And I think that was a valiant idea. Um, but I'm a, I'm a data guy, right? As a story engineer, I, I watch what's happening. And within eight years... I realized that what we were promoting to our investors and to the uh, the people that we were selling this idea to, uh, it, it wasn't actually happening. All the evidence that I saw was to the contrary. Uh, there were a million little compromises and, um, you know, uh, funding, uh, going to various organizations that we would find abhorrent as Christians. 
um, pro-abortion organizations and all sorts of things like that. And we have no control over that. And that's the excuse, right? The excuse is, well, you know, we only fight the battles we can and we, uh, we have control over what we have control over. But here's the catch is we all recognize uh, propaganda when we see it, right? So you see all these sort of movies that come out of Hollywood and they're rot with propaganda and they're rejected immediately because they, they don't know how to tell good stories anymore. They don't have any good stories left, really. So they need us. They need people who have a lot of truth in their hearts and, and who um, have worked through the principles to tell these really rich, great stories because there is an aspect of Christ in them. But then what they do is they take what you've given them and they lace in all the propaganda, right? All the, all the things that, again, you know, I don't know what we can say on air, but all the ideologies that we would find abhorrent as Christians. And now what we've given them is this delicious spoonful of sugar to put the poison in. Um, and, you know, a lot of people still argue with me. Well, you know, if you don't have control over this, that or the other, then you just have to accept it. Well, I don't want to give them <laughs> that. It turned out to be the opposite. I was giving them the Trojan horse with which they could uh, continue to destroy uh, our culture and our society. Let's let's take a step back. You, how did, what was your journey mm-hmm. of faith? How did you convert? Why did you convert? I was an atheist. I grew up in Hollywood. Um, as you mentioned, I was a child actor. Um, I... I had no interaction with Christianity really throughout my life um, at all. I had never met a Catholic priest. I had never met, I mean, other than maybe a couple televangelists over the years at fundraising events, I didn't really know much about it. Uh, And then my business partner went through a conversion. He did a movie down in Mexico and the producers on that happened to be Catholic. And, you know, between shoots, they were, slowly sort of talking to him about um, first philosophy and natural law and things like that, and then transitioned into Christianity in general. Now, I thought he had gone off and joined a cult. That was my only understanding of Christianity. And, you know, thanks be to God, him and his brother and his family, they decided that they were going to pray for one person for an entire year the least likely person they knew to convert, uh, they knew would, would probably convert, right? And that was me. In almost a year to the day, uh, he invited me. I always joke, he duped me. He said, hey, I'm going to this psychology conference. This guy's got a master's in psychology. We're working on this project right now about uh, teenagers dealing with addiction and dealing with uh, sort of coming of age. Would you like to go to this psychology conference? It's about vices and how they affect human psychology. I said, wow, that's a great idea. Yeah, let, I'll sit through that. That'll help us with our script. Well, I get there and the, this guy who has a master's degree in psychology and a master's degree in biology turned out to be a Catholic priest and an exorcist. Um, so I sat through this conference um, begrudgingly, very stubbornly. I had my arms crossed and, and my legs crossed and probably had my eyes crossed just to <laughs> signal to everybody that I wasn't interested. And, uh, you know, it's funny because I really, you know, pride's a, pride's a crazy thing. I really thought it was a setup. I thought it was this big intervention that these 40 or 50 people at this conference and this priest, that they were all there for me um, to try and try and get me. So hours into this conference, there's a break, and I confront this priest on the balcony, and he's smoking his cigar and trying to, you know, get a little reprieve. 
And I just start kind of leveling these very facile atheist arguments at him and arguments for why morality is relative to the individual and you know, all these silly things. And of course he's, he's he's a big brain. I mean, he's, he's one of those guys that he's not to be trifled with. He also had no interest in converting me and no interest in who I was. He was waving me off like a fly buzzing in his ear. Right. Sure. Okay. And he's just giving me these like one word answers. And he was answering my questions, but not in a way that was uh, an attempt at compelling me. Um, and oddly enough, that was the most compelling thing I think he could have done uh, because the rug was pulled out from under me. And I realized he has no idea who he is. He, he's not trying to convince me of anything. I stumbled it back into the room and realized everyone's eating hors d'oeuvres and happy and laughing and talking and no, no one cares about me. Um, and it just kind of struck me to the core. I sat down the rest of the conference and actually listened to what he was saying. And um, so he's a Thomist. He, he follows St. Thomas Aquinas in regards to human nature, in regards to vices and virtues. Um, and what I had always believed in was that there was some kind of roadmap to human nature. There was, you know, maybe there's no meaning to life, but we at least can map out who we are as, as, uh, as creatures, right? As, as these things existing. And that's so integral to storytelling. Uh, and I realized right then and there that everything he was saying was, was absolutely true. And the reason I thought it was personal to me, the reason I thought that his explanation of sin was personal was because it was so accurate to human nature in general. Um, and I wanted to know what the source of that was. And I went back to him that night less uh, contentious. And by the end of the night, I was asking, how does one become a Catholic? Um, and that was, I went from zero to Catholic in one night. Uh, and of course, you know, I had to go through learning all, all the, the truths of Christianity and I had to, um, make some hard decisions and I was baptized and within about a two month period, but I wasn't prepared for what it was going to do to my career. So very quickly I had to start telling my agent, you know, Oh, I'm busy. Oh, I can't go to this audition. I can't go to that audition. And I, I realized I really couldn't go to very many, if, if any. Um, and that was the impetus for me and these other Catholics deciding to start our own company. Um, and that sort of sent me on a whole, a whole other journey of uh, discovery. Did you lose many friends in this process? You know, I, I lost, I would say, most of them. Um, you know, it was an interesting thing. I had already lost a lot of my friends. Uh, I got uh, sober, clean and sober, about six years before that. Um, and so a very large portion of my friends had already been kind of cut off from that. And whatever was left, I mean, that was that was pretty much the end of most of those friendships. And it's funny because you reach out to those people and you, you, you try to keep the bonds of friendship. You try to transfer the bonds of friendship into other things, right? Um, but they're, they're not really interested. Um, Aristotle talks about all the different kinds of friendship. Uh, and ultimately, you know, friendships built on pleasure. Uh, once that, that bond is, is destroyed, there's not really anything left there. So, you know, what, okay. Why, why do you think that your idea with, because it sounds like a good idea to me that you know to to try to produce 
entertainment that's moral. Why doesn't it work? Why can't it work? Or can it work? Um, well, look, it, it, it can hypothetically work. But in our current day and age, I don't believe it can work. We, we have no power over the distribution lines. Um, and there's not a, a general consensus uh, over morality, even in regards to uh, Christian investors. You know, so we had a team project and we had these Christian investors who we were very explicit with about our goals, right? To change the, the course of culture and to uh, instill good morality and da, 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 da. And they show up on set asking, how come these underage girls are in bathrobes for this scene? They should be in their underwear. Um, and of course, they're the money. And so you have to you have to fight that battle. And then suddenly the day shuts down and you're you're looking at possibly uh, losing your in, uh, investment two weeks into shooting because you refuse to put these girls in their underwear. Now, that's a line you have to hold. Um, but there are lots of lines that suddenly don't have to be held. Right. OK, you're doing a. a a television show for eight to 12 demographics and they want to hire um, people who are morally the antithesis to everything we want to teach children and the distributors and the investors say if you don't hire these people the show doesn't go forward and you think well okay we'll hire them but we'll be able to control them because we have final say as the producers but then as that ship sails and starts rolling next thing you know the investors and the distributors are dictating what should be in the story, and you no longer have any legal control of the thing. You've sold it off, right? And, and, and now you're just acting as producer over it. And so little by little, the erosion happens. What started out as, a, as a, uh, something that was integrally good now has all these little evils that you, you kind of justify by going, well, they're not explicit, and it's not, you know, it's not a real-world evil. We're not making some young lady show up on set in the nude. Um, it's just a small ideological evil that will hopefully be overlooked. But that's exactly how they changed the culture in the first place, right, is, is just slipping those things in and normalizing them. Um, so, you know, and, and until there's some big overturn of the distribution lines and the investment lines, uh, you know, how films are financed, um, I, I don't, I don't see how it's possible now. And I always tell Christian filmmakers, look, Hey, look, if you want to do this, if that's what you think you're called to, you know, do it on a small scale, do it with your buddies, you know, do it with your own money or your, your neighbor's money or whatever. Um, and don't seek distribution because the second you sell it off to some big company, they're, they're going to put all the stuff in it. They'll do reshoots. They'll do whatever they have to do to make sure there's at least some evil in it. So just release it yourself, you know, release it on YouTube really, or, you know, I mean, that, that platform's shot now too, right? But uh, find ways to, to release it yourself. Um, as for me, it's too time consuming. It's too expensive to my time to go through all of that and to, to put my efforts in. Uh, it costs a lot for my family. So it's not financially viable uh, to do that. And ultimately I realized my family is not only my my sacred duty they're also my means of sanctification they are how i'm i'm gonna you know uh, work out my salvation through fear and trembling so uh, i retired and i actually am, am in the process of taking a vow of poverty 
and I just spend my days working in the field with my, my daughters, and uh, we spend a lot of time playing games together. We got rid of all of the media in our house, and we just we just spend our time together now, and we, we pray a lot, and we, and we work hard. Let me ask you something. Let me ask you something. Let's say some of these Christian movies that come out, and, uh, you know, God bless them from doing it, but, but sometimes it seems to me they're just a little bit too sugar-coated, and, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's no real conflict, or uh, there's no question of conflict, which is what we're all going through through our lives, conflict, but yet it seems like it's too easy to pat. Do you have any comment on that? or? Yep. I do. It's it's a little controversial, and I I hope I don't uh, divide your audience at all. And, and, you know. Well, you can. Ultimately, I think it's about. <laughs> ultimately, I think it's sacramentalism, right? I I do think that that Catholics tend to make much richer, deeper stories, and I think it's because we we have an understanding that human nature is both spiritual and material. Um, that is the point of the sacraments, right? Protestants, they're their version of Christianity is much more sort of the soapbox preaching, right? You go to a Protestant service and it's, it's an hour of preaching. And so their movies become this kind of soapbox um, from, from which they can, they can do their preaching. It's, it's a almost purely spiritual uh, approach. And, and I think, I think they could learn a lesson there. I think that they could look at the, uh, the history of Christianity and the deep, deep understanding that we are, a body-soul composite, right? We are as material as we are spiritual. Uh, the body conforms to the operations of the soul, but w- you know we need that material aspect. And I think I think that they could serve to um, to look at that a little harder and to, to to grab hold of that those material conflicts that exist within themselves and, and within the world, and try and apply them in story form. I think that's the biggest problem. Um, and I also think that. With all people, whether it's Protestants or Catholics or anybody, the the great appeal is success. Um, when when your goal stops being about you know the uh, the true good, and you start justifying, right? You start saying, well, if I can make it to so and so's level, then I can come out a little stronger, right? So let me bury all this other stuff that I believe in, and let me just present the the, the wishy washier things. Because um, those are goods too. The problem is, the, the the higher you rise, the more of an overhead you have. The more people rely on you. It doesn't get easier. It gets harder. And that's the big lie that that every single Christian I think accepts when they go to Hollywood is if I can keep my head down long enough, I can come out guns blazing once I become Marky Mark or Mel Gibson or whatever. Um, and the reality is that just doesn't happen. Uh, the pressures are all the more. Let me ask you something. The, the films over the, let's say, in, in this century, the 21st century, are there any films you admire that you think hit the goal? Oh, I, I mean, absolutely. I, I, film is a good. Art is a good, right? So, you know, just like we can look at the the art uh, that Christians have always made and have always used to elevate the mind to God, um, films can do that, too. I I, I was doing a Shortly after my conversion, I was doing a project in Romania for four months, and I knew nobody there. I didn't speak the language I was, and I had just really converted, and I was, you know, a, a bit on the lonely side. And I would spend almost every evening 
<laughs> this is kind of embarrassing. I would spend almost every e- evening, because keep in mind, I was working like 16, 17 hours a day. I would eat my ba- uh, my dinner in the bathtub and watch A Man for All Seasons. Ah. Um, that was like my nightly routine. I love that movie. I think there's a lot of great explicitly Catholic movies, uh, Christian movies, and I think there's a lot of uh, uh, implicit ones, you know, like, um, uh, oh, what's uh, that Catholic movie? Um there are a lot of Catholic uh, movies. Jimmy Stewart. Uh, it's a Wonderful Life. With Jimmy Stewart, uh, Christmas. It's a Wonderful Life. Well, yes. You know, that that okay. one's obviously you know, impl- implicit. Um, but there's I mean, there's a lot of great movies. I, I just saw one recently, uh, A Hidden Life. I think is a phenomenal Christian movie. I think it's I think it hits hits every mark. I think it's oh, beautiful. Oh, that's that's the one and, about the and, the um, occupation, right? A Hidden Life. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a gorgeous movie, and it's morally spot on. Um, it, it presents true Christianity uh, ideologically, in so far as how it, you know, Christianity always destroys paradigms, right? Like that's what we've always done for two thousand years. We 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 never quite fit into into one camp. There's always one camp and another, right? And so there's always this dichotomy in culture and and we tend to shatter that consistently um and that movie i think presented that really well um so movies themselves are a good i just think the the means of of getting there are almost impossible to the point where uh it's not worth my efforts um when i could be spending my time with my family that that one i'm assured of i'm assured that if i spend time with my family in prayer and in, in in holy work um, that I will have lived a good life. Um, you know, so someone like Terrence Malick, who made A Hidden Life, I mean, he made a lot of rotten, wretched movies, both, you know, in in actual morality, in actual, you know, what they had to do to make the movie uh, in regards to actresses and things like that. And then later they, they were a little less evil in that regard and, and just sort of ideologically dangerous. Um, so he had... To, he had to do a lot of those and he was going through his conversion over a very long 20 year period. And it culminated with this beautiful film. Now, is that a path we should, we we should look, look for? Is that a path we should take? I don't think so. Um, And I know he wouldn't have been able to make a hidden life with the, the amount of money and the the distribution lines that he uh, relied on were only available to him because of all the things he had done before. Right. Now let me let me ask you something else. Now I I've met very few people who are not either in the priesthood or taking religious orders who've taken a vow of poverty. Why did you do that, and how are you going to live? Yeah, uh, that's one I'm still working out. I'm 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 spending a lot of time talking to a few really really smart priests, um, including my own parish priest, uh, and then uh, being in communication with the bishop uh, because it will ultimately be his. He will have to agree to it. Uh, and I'm working out the practicals of it. So one of the things that pe- people misunderstand about poverty, poverty doesn't exclude ownership. Uh, it excludes excess. So, you know, for us, figuring out what is the bare minimum we need and sort of setting these milestones of simplicity where we can slowly strip away all that is, that is the excess in our life. And I think as Americans, I think we're really fortunate to live in, in such a great country. Uh, and I think that we have grown really complacent in excess. And I think 
I think almost to a man, you could challenge nearly everyone in their faith and get some capitulation from them because of something they're not willing to let go of, right? Whether it's football or, uh, you know, any, any number of things that they have an attachment to. And this is the old, this is the old timeless Christianity was this idea of personal asceticism, not, not always like the desert fathers, right? But everyone had to embrace their own personal asceticism, their own detachment from the world so that they can better serve the world without being swayed by it. Um, and I, I want to teach my kids to do that. I don't want them to be slaves. You know, I, I spent most of my life as a slave and I, I, I just want to be a free man. Poverty is true freedom. There's another aspect to it is, you know, this is kind of rooted in, in Americanism. I think a little bit is this rugged individualism. And I think it has, you know, the idea that, that the lowest form of society is the individual. And that simply isn't true. The lowest form of society, the, the smallest building block you can find is the family. Tribalism. Um, right. A kind of tribalism, yeah. And so the problem is, is when you fracture society down to the individual level, no, no one person can really relate to any one person ever again. Um, and I think that's why you see the destruction of the family now is because that's a mirror of that rugged individualism. Ultimately, poverty forces you to build community. I, I, I'm one of the most uh, um, self-reliant people asking for help, especially as an addict and as all these other things, learning to ask for help and to reach out my hand um, and take someone else's hand and, and you know, accept their help was probably the hardest thing I've ever had to learn how to do. And poverty is a beautiful way of forcing you to learn to be reliant on everybody because ultimately we are all reliant. We're reliant on God. We're reliant on the entirety of history before us. Every one of our ancestors, everyone that contributed to society, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And then we think we're these miraculous individuals uh, with godlike powers over our own destiny. And it's, it's an absurd idea. And we need to relearn reliance. We need to relearn to look to our neighbors and to, because that will also teach us to then be there for our neighbors. Um, we need to rebuild communities. And, and I think if more people took on some aspect of poverty in some little way in their own life, giving up the extra car, we donated our, our extra car and just decided, you know what, we'll suffer a little for it. It's not going to be the end of the world. And we certainly have. We've certainly had to change plans and reevaluate how we're going to you know, do this, that, or the other. Um, but that little bit of suffering has helped us grow, and it's helped us to rely on other people and to uh, ultimately forge stronger bonds. Now, if I may, and, and forgive the intrusion by the producer, but here I am. Um, You're never an intrusion, sir. <laughs> um, okay, so you called yourself a Thomist. Um, what, what mm -hmm. in your mind made you choose Thomas Aquinas over, say, St. Augustine? Oh, I don't, I don't pit them against each other. I know there's a lot of sort of highbrow um, uh, theologians who, who, you know, they look at St. Saint, Saint Augustine and they see Platonism, right? And they look at St. Thomas and they see uh, Aristotelianism. I don't see that dichotomy, though. I really don't. I think, first of all, my, I have two confirmation saints, baptismal saint and confirmation saint. 
um, St. Moses the Black, he was a desert father, and then St. Augustine. Um, you know, I, I don't think that they're irreconcilable. Irre- <laughs> I, I think they're compatible. <laughs> and, <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I'm oh, with you on that. I'm just, I was just that, curious that was why, you know. moment for you right there. Uh, but, you know, ultimately, what I think St. Augustine taps in on is a more, I think he expresses the mysticism of his faith more readily. And I think a lot of Thomists forget that St. Thomas was a mystic. That wasn't his expression, though. He didn't, he didn't go around writing long dissertations on all of the mystical experiences he had. His, his goal was to lock in on the material world and, and how it relates to God, right? Um, and so he was just taking a different approach but he was just as much a mystic as St. As Augustine was. There's a beautiful story of St. Thomas, you know, towards the end of his life, he was burning uh, a lot of his writings. He, they stopped him and said, what are you doing? And he had had this vision of our Lord. And he said, you know, in light of that vision, uh, uh, everything I've written is but straw. Right? And, and to say it was much straw was a much stronger term back then because that was what you used to pad the bottom of the toilet, right? That was the, right, it was right. like saying it's like dung. Um, you know, and he also, he wrote of the Eucharist once, and uh, I love this story. He wrote of the Eucharist once and he was kneeling in front of the cross, um, begging and praying to our Lord to uh, assure him that he, he was accurate and that there were no errors in his writing. And he had a, a, a mystical experience. He heard the voice of our Lord um, say, you've written well of me, Thomas, and what will you have uh, in return? And without missing a beat, he responded, only you, Lord. Only you. And I think that kind of sums it up for me, is that all of the Thomistic uh, truths, if you will, the, right, the approach to the faith from a Thomistic standpoint, it's meant to serve our spiritual life. It's meant to serve our, our deep prayer and our meditation. Um, and when it doesn't, it can sound like a gong. Um, but, but I think when it's rooted in prayer and that, that attempt at, you know, um, mysticism. Well, drawing back, drawing back to what you were saying gone. earlier, yeah. drawing back to what you were saying earlier, I mean, all good fiction is rooted in prayer in some way, shape, or form. I mean, the my favorite novel Absolutely. is Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. So, he's my favorite author. Yeah, I mean, he 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 was a, a man deeply rooted in prayer. Yeah, you know, Bug. I think we're running out of time. What's your real name, by the way? I hate calling you Bug, but why, how did you get that name? Let's end it on a lighter <laughs> note. So, I was born. Uh, I was born. I was given the name Brandon. And when I was getting married, um, I, I wanted to take my stepfather's last name. He was, he's a great man, and he raised me um, with just enough virtue to keep me from going fully insane in Hollywood. Um, and he, there was no reason for him to, to take as good care of me as he did, but he was, I wanted my children and my wife to have his last name. And since I was legally changing my name, I've always worked under Bug. I, nobody calls, I've never heard the name Brandon outside of legal context. So I also legally changed my name to Bug as well. So um, Bug is my legal name. Uh, <laughs> I was baptized. 
Moses Michael Augustine. So, you know, I, I suppose that'll be my name in heaven. Okay, well, very good. Listen, you, you know, I'll tell you something, I, and I don't say this often. I truly admire your life's journey, and, and I hope you serve as an inspiration thank for you, other sir. people. I, I really do admire you, and and thank you for being on the show, and uh, thank you for sharing I'll your experience. Be an inspiration or, or a cautionary tale. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, thank you for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. No, Thank you so much, sir, once again. Okay, so we're off the air now. Where do you live now? Yeah. Uh, I live about a minute north of the Michigan-Ohio border, so I'm in Michigan. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm in the Diocese of Detroit, uh, as, as far away from Detroit as you can possibly be in the Diocese of Detroit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> do you ever come across Tom Monahan? Tom Monahan. That sounds really familiar. Yeah, Where he started Ave Maria, but he's originally from Detroit, and I think he still spends uh, the summers there. And I don't know where in Detroit. Okay. I don't know what suburb or whatever he lives in, but I know he's from the Detroit area. Uh, I, I don't know him personally, but that's probably why his name sounds familiar. I know, I know of Ave Maria. Yeah, he. Uh, you know, it's not. It's not the only thing he's done. He's done a hundred things, but uh, he owned the Detroit Tigers years ago, and. Domino's Pizza and, and is given who knows how much to Catholic causes around the the world. Oh, that's why I know his name. Yeah, yeah that he was he was one of the people that my my old company was constantly trying to track down for investment purposes. What do you mean constantly trying to track down? <laughs> well, he doesn't like getting involved in show business. Well, so, yeah. like he told me, like Mel. Right, well, and that's what everyone always said. Yeah, like Mel. G he, Mel Gibson yeah, came up to him. That. I'm sorry, what? Go ahead, go ahead. No, no please, Mel Gibson please, please. came up to him once and he said, I'm listen, I'm seven million short on this movie about the passion and Tom told him, Listen, I don't know anything about movies or Hollywood or any of that stuff. I have to pass. So, yeah. You know. Yeah, no, that's uh, that he's a smart man. You know, oh, yeah, he's very smart. To make uh, the quickest way to make a hundred thousand dollars in Hollywood is to start with two hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> You know, everything's on sand. But listen, thanks thanks a lot. If you can come up, listen, I'd like to do this again, you know, in the fall or early winter. If you can come up with something you want to talk about that we didn't touch upon dramatically today. I mean, we certainly can overlap five, sure. ten minutes. But if you come, I'd love to talk to you again in the fall. Okay. And you I know would, what? I would love that. If you're ever in New York, we have a friend of ours I'd, I'd like you to meet. He's a Capuchin friar who's a missionary in the Middle East, but he comes up. Right now he's going to come back to New York in the, in the fall because he was he was blown up in that explosion in Lebanon, and he has oh, to undergo oh, further wow. surgeries or whatever. Yeah, um, remember the August. But yeah. he's uh, you know, he's one of those guys with three doctorates at 45. and I think you, know, you and Father Paul would get along. Yeah, I think, you would, I think you'd get along with them. You know, and here's a guy with three doctorates who makes 400 euros a month, you know. Yeah, yeah I, would, I would absolutely love to, to pick his brain and to spend time in conversation with yeah. him. Yeah, like he's one of those guys who, you know, translates Persian into Arabic and Arabic into Persian, which, by the way, he goes to, you know, mosques every once in a while. It's not about peace and love. <laughs> you know, but he's, no, he, he gives you no, an interesting it's perspective. About, it's not about peace and love. Yes. <laughs> you know, so he, he you know, and I'd, I'd love for you guys to meet and talk. I think you'd have both have a good time. You don't come to New York, I assume, since you have a vow of poverty, right? 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I haven't since, since my new life. Um, so actually since the last time I, I saw y'all. Okay. Um, I am now, uh, I travel a little bit. Sometimes people will ask me to do speaking, speaking engagements and things like that. Um, and I was actually just in Buffalo, um, uh, last week. Some friends of mine called and asked if I could take a few days and come help them with something. So let me ask you something. Maybe we can set up something. Maybe we can set up something where you speak at our, our Legatus chapter here in New York, just about what we talked about today. And maybe we get some of the expenses paid and stuff like that. We'll work on that. Okay. Okay. You you are more than welcome to to crash in my apartment, which is, yeah, well, we got a big house. You would, you would be in the ignominious Uh, company of Ed Bars. <laughs> do you know? Do you know who Ed Bars was? No. Okay, he was. Um, I think it's. He was. Uh, if you remember, Ken's Burn Civil War. PBS series. Yeah. He was. He was wounded in the yeah. Solomon Islands in World War Two. His left arm was shot off. He went to school on the GI Bill. Worked for the Park Service for fifty years, and while he was there memorized every battlefield report of the civil war i mean if you had an ancestor at you know antietam he could say on on september 14th 1862 your ancestor was over on the right flank here with whatever i mean he could break it down by company yeah which is unbelievable but he he was we were fortunate to have him as a guest a couple of times in our house when he was speaking here in new york because i i Big guy of the Civil War too, you know American history, and he used to speak mm-hmm. at different clubs we had, and he'd stay at our house. And meanwhile, but you could stay in the same room, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. And you know the the that funniest thing, fantastic. you know, yeah. he he wakes up in my bedroom, and there are samurai swords and Godzilla figures all over the place, and he, you know, this is someone who was you know fighting the Japanese, and he just goes, "What on earth have I woken up to?" Yeah, well, he was ninety five at the time, so he wasn't. <laughs> But listen, at, at ninety five, he That's could do he could do an hour speech without looking in his notes. Wow! Yeah. All right. Listen, wow. it's great talking. Yeah, I got to get back to work. Uh, yeah, too. Yeah, get to right. it, guys. Stay I in touch. The conversation right. and and uh, yep, yeah, I, I look forward to seeing y'all uh, one of these days. Okay, we'll work it out. Thank you so much. Appreciate All you. Right. All right. Thanks, y'all. Bye. All right. Adios. You know when Bug Hall talked about the guys who prayed for him, if they can save one soul. It brought to back to me a story that um, one of our clients who passed away, Mr. Hartog, and she was in a work camp in West Germany. Well, at the time, the western part of Germany, I should say. Um, during World War II, she was of Jewish ancestry. She wasn't even, you know, Jewish. And she was arrested, you know, in Holland. She was sent to a work camp. And she was on her way on train to Auschwitz. And a German soldier came up to her. And for whatever reason, in her mind, she didn't know why, he started a fight for no reason and started yelling and screaming at her. And he says, I'm going to teach you a lesson. I'm going to take you off this train. And, quote, he took her off the train to Auschwitz. And of course she was crying and everything because the Germans were excellent at propaganda and 
she thought she was going to a better place. They were going to have better conditions. Her family was already going there. They were already on the train before. Um, and she was going to join her family there. So she was crying. She was all upset. Of course, at the end of the war, she realized that this German soldier uh, had saved her life. And she didn't know whether he just felt sorry for her because she was a young girl or whether he was trying to save one person, you know, a, a train or whatever. And and she really, that, that was one of the mysteries in her life. And, and thankfully, you know, she lived through the war and she came to the United States and she lived to be 100 years old and she died very peacefully in her sleep at 100. So the story, to, to some extent, has a happy ending, but it was a mystery in her life whether this soldier was trying to save one person a day or did he just feel sorry for her because she was a young girl. And um, I think this is it. You know, you, you try to save one soul, and I think Evelyn Waugh had it in in his in one of his books in the uh, sort of honor trilogy that if one soul can be saved, it's worth World War Two. And, you know, I, I credit these guys for, for, you know, saving this one soul. And we met, Michael and I met uh, Bug Hall at a dinner just after Ash Wednesday about two years ago before the COVID. And there were a group of actors or whatever, and, and they were going to try to make films in a moral way. And if you heard from Bug Hall, it's not very easy. And that's why he walked away from it, because he just said, you can't compromise with morality. Um, and the problem is if you try to make films in Hollywood too, today, you have to make too many compromises. So, listen, God bless him for the stance he's taken. Uh, I don't know too many lay people who have taken a vow of poverty. Um, but if he can do it, God bless him, and I have the greatest respect for him. And, you know, let's, you know, I remember Jim Caviezel said he did Thomas, I'm sorry, not Thomas. Um, Paul, disciple of Christ, and he said the idea was to try to save souls. And, you know, some of these guys are doing a better job at it than some of us. So, God bless them. Hope you're enjoying the show this week. We'll be on next week, same time. And stations. Join us on Ask the Lawyer with Eli Connors. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away.